First Thessalonians chapter five, beginning in verse one, it says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live with him. Therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. Remember, for those of you who have just joined us, the theme of Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians is the coming of Jesus Christ for the church. Paul began the letter with a note on how the church was born in chapter one, how the church matured in chapter two, how the church is established in chapter three. And Paul has exhorted the believers to walk in holiness in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. In harmony in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. In honesty in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And now in hope in chapter 4, verses 13, all the way to the end of the chapter and for the first 11 verses that we just read. In that hope, Paul will present a series of stark contrasts. He will contrast the life and the heart and the preparation of the Christian and the lost. Paul will contrast and compare knowledge and ignorance, expectancy and surprise, sobriety and drunkenness, lethargy and alertness, unprepared heart and the prepared heart. He is going to contrast light and darkness. And so the believer is exhorted to watch in verses 1 through 11. To be respectful towards leaders in verses 12 and 13. To be mindful of one another in verses 14 and 15. To be thankful in verses 16 through 18. And the unbeliever is warned to consider his or her false sense of security. The unbeliever cries out for a peace that will never come and a security that can't come. But the believer cries out for Jesus' coming. The last prayer in the Bible is John praying, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that God's judgment is certain. We Christians look for not the Antichrist, but for Jesus Christ. 
The Bible teaches the fact of his coming in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. The importance of his coming. Remember what I've already shared with you. The second coming of Jesus is spoken of plainly or alluded to 318 times in the New Testament out of 260 chapters. And the manner of his coming is described as bodily, visible, literally. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 1, at the beginning of the chapter, the Disciples and the apostles gather together. Jesus ascends into heaven. An angel shows up in verse 11 of chapter 1 in Acts and says, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up to heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus went to heaven physically, bodily, it was observed he will come back physically and bodily. It will be observed. In First Thessalonians chapter five, verse one, look what it says. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. Now, we as Bible students come to the Bible and we see that there's a chapter division between chapter four and chapter five. There may be a chapter division, but the thought continues, but then changes. As a matter of fact, it's from a different perspective. The expression, but concerning the times and the seasons means we're turning a corner. Remember, at the beginning of chapter four, in verse nine, what we looked at last week, but concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should tell you. And then he says in verse 13, but I don't want you to be ignorant concerning those who have fallen asleep. And now he is turning the corner and he shifts to the new topic under discussion in verses in chapter four, verses 11 through 18. Paul has written about the rapture. The coming, the parousia of Jesus for the church, the appearing of Jesus and the presence of Jesus. And now Paul will shift the emphasis to the issue of times and seasons, to the issue of the day of the Lord, to the issue of the sudden characteristics of the return of Jesus for a world that believes that the coming of Jesus is a fantastic myth instead of a blessed hope. I hate to say this, but I suspect that there are people right here, right now. Who are willing to listen to the idea that Jesus is going to come back, but in their heart, they don't really believe it. They understand that there seems to be prophecies surrounding the first coming of Jesus, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would say the most amazing things, that he would live the most amazing life, that he would die for sin, that he would rise from the dead, that he ascended into heaven. And they're not quite sure if all of that is true or if all of that is false, but they can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus would actually come again. Paul knew what so many Bible teachers seem to forget, that the believers don't need to know when the day of the Lord will come, but that but that it will come. And remember what we've already said, the the certainty of Jesus's second coming 
is many times more multiplied than the certainty of the second coming. We would all like to conveniently circle a date in our calendar or make a data entry in our electronic calendar. It's so easy to check a calendar and say, oh, okay, there's the kid's birthday. Oh, there's my wife's birthday. Oh, and that's the coming of Jesus. Yeah, we'll circle that date. That's an important date. That's when he's coming back. It's so much easier to circle a calendar than it is to circle your own heart and change. John MacArthur writes, To know when the day of the Lord will come would foster spiritual indifference if it were still a long way off or panic if it were coming soon. Being prepared for the return of Christ doesn't involve date setting, clock watching or sign seeking. God has chosen not to reveal the specific time of end time events so that all believers will live in constant anticipation of them. As hard as this may be for some of you to believe, you can't know. I know what some of you are thinking. I want to know. You can't know. Imagine that we had some ability, somehow, that we could transport ourselves back in time to one Sunday ago. On when you're leaving this particular service and you go home and you have the knowledge of all of the things that have transpired in this last week. And you call whatever friends or family you may have in Port-au-Prince or Haiti. And you say, listen, I know it's Sunday, but on Tuesday there's going to be a massive earthquake. 50,000 people are going to instantly die. Another 100,000 are going to be on the precipice of life and death. 50,000 instant orphans and one and a half million people are going to be homeless. I think you should know. How many of them would believe you? Some would laugh. Most would scoff. And almost certainly no one would believe you. Even Christians seem hopelessly addicted to date setting, clock watching, and sign seeking. Because it is easy to mark your calendar. It is easy to set your watch. It is easy to go after the next prophecy crusade. But it is difficult to abandon personal dishonesty. It is difficult to forsake sin. It is difficult to live a holy life. It is difficult to be a generous person. It is difficult to change. And we all live in the illusion that there's still time. Someone once sang, time is a gift of love and grace. Without time, there'd be no time to change. Time to be open. And some of us think there's still time. We think that there's time to change. The character is an expression of your nature. C.S. Lewis noted, quote, we must never speak to simple, excitable people about the day without emphasizing again and again the utter impossibility of prediction. It was his way of saying you can't know. And by the way, the phrase the times and the seasons are used three times in the Bible. Times is the word chronos. Most of you know that word. We get the word chronogram from it or chronology or chronometer. It speaks of increments of time, either short or long, a specific date. 
Seasons is the word translated kairos. Kairos simply doesn't mean simply the time, but it also is included in the concept a place. It originally meant the fit measure. As a matter of fact, we have an expression in our own language that we use to describe the word seasons or kairos. It's the word that you and I use when we say this is the right moment. When we say this is the right moment, it implies that there could be a moment that is not right. So it speaks to the rightness or the wrongness of a moment to do something or to refrain from doing something. And so here time means the duration to the time of the event and seasons are the crisis or the signs which designate the occasion. We might say, how long will it be until the Lord comes? What will happen before he comes? And both of those are legitimate questions. And Paul says, but you don't need that I should write to you about them. As a matter of fact, Jesus has already spoken on this issue in Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Before he ascends into heaven, Jesus, it says, the disciples ask him, what are the times and the seasons? Is this the time of the end? And in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority. Oh, Jesus, but we really want to know. It's not for you to know, but I want to know. Get used to being disappointed. You know, if a person sadly comes to this church and if a person sadly walks through those doors and if a person sadly comes to this pulpit and if a person sadly tells you that they know the time and the hour, get up out of your seat and leave this church. I won't always be with you. There may come a time when somebody else ascends these steps and fills this pulpit. And if that person says to you, the Bible's not true, we can know the times. That's the time to find a new church. Napoleon said, History is a set of lies that we all agree upon. I can see his doubt and his skepticism. Dr. A.T. Pearson said, no, history is his story. It's the story of Jesus. All of human history revolves around one theme. It's the theme of how God is going to redeem you. It's the theme of how your sin can be dealt with. It's the theme of how you can experience forgiveness and hope and a right relationship with God and Christ. The story of history is the story of Jesus coming. It's the promises that Jesus makes and it's the promises that Jesus keeps. I don't mind answering people's questions on the radio. I love answering people's questions. But it's occurred to me that man cannot live by questions alone. But by every promise that proceeds out of the word of God and the lips of Jesus, it is the promises of God that is going to transform your heart and change your life. It's God who's ordained the times and the seasons and the nations and the earth. 
It's God who has gathered up all of human history and is directing it. So when Paul was with the Thessalonians, he apparently spelled out the Lord's teaching and the apostles teaching concerning the second coming of Jesus Christ. And clearly the people were misinformed, not by Paul, concerning the rapture of the church. And so he sets them straight in chapter four, verses 13 through 18 and the resurrection of the dead. And so in verse two, as he's turning the corner, he says, for you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. So remember what we talked about. Times, seasons, the day of the Lord and the thief in the night. The day of the Lord at first blush doesn't seem to be a single day event that's covered in a 24 hour period. Ray Stedman writes, quote, The phrase day of the Lord refers to any period of time when God acts directly and unmistakably in human affairs. It may be in blessing as in the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, or it may be in judgment, or it may be that the same event will be a judgment to some people and a blessing to others, unquote. Paul goes on to describe the characteristics of that day. The day of the Lord will come stealthily. The day of the Lord will come suddenly. The day of the Lord will come inevitably. The day of the Lord is an inescapable fact. And the day of the Lord, it says, comes as a thief in the the night. And we've got to understand something that thief in the night can't mean Not thief in the night. When a thief comes, it's unexpected and it's unannounced. That's the very nature of a thief. The thief doesn't go, hey, I'm going to be in your neighborhood at about 8 o'clock tomorrow night. I was wondering if I might be able to rip you off. (laughs) See, you laugh because you go, no thief does that. Because if a thief announces the thief's coming, you're going to call the police at 7 o'clock. So if the thief does decide to call, you just go, hey, uh, we'll see you when you get here. But we'll have company. Just let them know. It has to be unexpected and unannounced. But look at verse chapter four, verse 17, when excuse me, when it says in uh, verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. That doesn't sound unannounced. It sounds exactly the opposite of unannounced. So how can you come quietly and loudly? How can you come announced and unannounced? How can you come secretly and suddenly? How do you explain that? You know how I explain it? Do you remember when Jesus rose from the dead? Jesus rose from the dead physically, literally from the grave. The Bible says that between the period of time, 40 days, it was a period of time when Jesus was able to interact with his disciples and his apostles. And during that 48 period, he could come and he could go. He would appear and he would reappear. But at the end of the 40 days, he goes to the Mount of Olives. He ascends into heaven physically, bodily, visibly. Between the time that Jesus comes in the atmosphere for the Christians 
He's going to come. The Bible speaks of a time. It's called the marriage feast of the Lamb for, for believers, but it's also called a time of judgment for the unbeliever. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 42, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. In Mark 13, 32, it says, But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. If the angels don't know. Why in the world would they tell Edgar Wise not? If the angels don't know, then why does every false prophet and every false pretender feel the need to set a date? Jesus says in Mark thirteen thirty five, watch, therefore, for you know not when the master of the house is coming, whether it is at evening or at midnight, at the cock crowing or in the morning, lest coming suddenly he finds you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. How is that possible? How is it possible that Jesus comes in the morning and he also comes at night? How, how can he come in the day and in the night? Well, Right now, in Colorado, it's 11.56. But in India, 12 hours away, it's 11.56 at, at night. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he comes, is it going to be dark for some? Is it going to be light for others? Is it going to be winter for some? Is it going to be summer for others? That's exactly the way the atmosphere and the world in which we live operates. Watch. And look what it says in verse 3. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. Paul changes the use of the personal pronoun from us and you to they and them. Who are they and them in verse 3? Paul isn't talking about himself. He certainly isn't talking about the believers in Macedonia. He's not talking about the believers in Thessalonica. Paul is speaking of the unbeliever and the make-believer. The unbeliever and the make-believer witness the unannounced beginning of judgment. The people living at that time, believing they are experiencing a time of peace and safety, will suddenly be plunged into a series of cataclysmic judgment. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, the believer is called wise. They're called wise because they heed the signs and the warnings. The unbeliever is called wicked in Daniel chapter 12, verse 10, because they ignore the warning. They ignore the sign. They're caught unaware. They're caught by surprise. They are confounded. As a matter of fact, when it says, for when they say peace and safety, the Greek word for safety is asphaleia. It, it first meant firmness or certainty. It later came to be used to describe security. By the way, in the ancient papyri, it was a legal term. It was used as a word to serve as proof or security. You and I, we use this, this kind of language in our own culture. We speak of social security to speak of a, the certainty of a provision in our older age. We speak of national security in order to speak of, of, of the government's responsibility to protect its citizens. 
But there is no human security that will save you from God's judgment. There's no wall that can be built. There's no tunnel that can be constructed. There's no place on the planet that will escape the judgment of God. And so Paul places an emphasis on how unexpected and unforeseen and sudden is the word that he uses. The word is also translated unaware in Luke chapter 21, verse 34, where people are caught and surprise isn't a big enough word to describe what will happen. Then the Bible says, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Some of the news images that have come in from Haiti included just yesterday a baby that was born. As far as we know, I mean, I don't know how many babies have been born. I suspect that babies have been born. But the baby is the, the, the mother is pregnant. This is her first child. This is and, and the baby is coming and the baby is coming. The baby doesn't know that 50,000 people are dead and another 50,000 people are injured. This baby doesn't know that that one and a half million people are homeless. This baby doesn't know. The baby doesn't know. All the baby knows is that it's time to come. And if you've ever been a pregnant woman or if you've ever been the husband of a pregnant woman, you know when it's time, it's time. When my son Jonathan was born, my wife was in that big ninth month. She looked great, great with child. And she's doing some exercises. And as she's doing exercises, she comes up, she stands up and she says to me, my back broke. I go, that's impossible. If your back were broken, you wouldn't be standing right now. My back broke. She was saying her bag broke. The water came. The baby is coming. And I go, the bag broke. The bag broke. C.S. Lewis writes, God is going to invade the earth in force. But what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, comes crashing in something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left for this Time it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realize it or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that choice. It won't last forever. We must take it or we must leave it. C.S. Lewis was right. You see, 
One of the things that people are reluctant to tell you is that the moment when Jesus appears, whatever circumstance, whatever state you find yourself in, that's the state you're going to remain in. And I don't mean the state of Colorado and I don't mean the state of Texas. I mean, in the state of sin or in the state of redemption, in the state of grace, you will be the object of mercy or you will be the object of wrath. One of the images that came out of Haiti was a woman who went into a grocery store to buy, of all things, some pet food for her pet. And she finds herself in the pet aisle and all of a sudden the earth starts shaking and the roof caves in and it lands on a pile of dog food and she's wedged in between the sacks of the dog food. But she wasn't given a choice to stand or to sit. The circumstances determined where she was going to be and what she was going to do. And they dug for days. And they dug her out. She managed to escape. But Paul says, they shall not escape. In the Greek, it's even more dramatic. It says, Oh, may ek fugozin. It's a double negative in the original language. They shall not, they shall not by any means escape. All human beings who have not trusted Jesus will face the terrible day of judgment. John Walford writes, quote, the day of the Lord is a period of time. The day of the Lord is a period of time in which God will deal with wicked men directly and dramatically in fearful judgment. Today, a man may be a blasphemer of God. He may be an atheist. He can denounce God. He can teach bad doctrine. Seemingly, God does nothing about it. But the day is designated in the scripture as The day of the Lord, it is coming when God will punish human sin and he will deal in wrath and in judgment with a Christ rejecting world. One thing we can be sure of that God in his own way will bring every soul into judgment. That's not the time to decide. This is the time to decide. And again, the point and the passage in its context isn't about your personal death. Remember what what I shared with you last week. There is no comfort in death. This is given. It isn't the comfort of knowing you're going to die, but rather it is the comfort of knowing that Jesus Christ is going to return. That's what gives us comfort. As a matter of fact, in verse four, it says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that this day should overtake you as a thief. Here's the contrast. You are a believer. Or you're not. You're saved. Or you're not. You're in darkness. Or you're not. The emphasis in the scripture Oddly enough, is your condition at his coming, not the social conditions, not the political conditions, not the environmental conditions of the world. Now, make no mistake about it. There are clues that are given about those conditions. But the social, political and environmental conditions are not supposed to get you into a place of apathy and indifference in your own life. The most important thing about this passage is your character when he comes. 
the unbelievers in darkness. But that isn't who you are. As a matter of fact, in verse 5, it says, you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. The true believer are children of light. They're children of understanding. They're children of wisdom. They're children with vision. And by the way, the proper term for children or sons in the Greek language is techna. But here, it's a Greek transliteration of a Hebrew idiom. It's the word... Huoi, it means, again, the emphasis is on the character of the person and the condition of the person. Sons of light, sons of day. The Bible uses the same idiom when it speaks of the sons of the kingdom in Matthew 8:12, the sons of Gehenna, these are the sons of hell in Matthew 21:5, the son of peace, Luke 10:6, the sons of truth, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2. We're children of the light, we're children of the day. When I was a kid growing up, we used to sing a song like that. We're the children of the light and we're the children of the day. We need not ever stumble in an ever darkened way, though the darkness may go thick around us. And there's tragedy everywhere. Still, Jesus Christ is in our hearts. The light of the world is there. The contrast is the reality of who you are. Once again, it is the expression of your nature. Fruit grows on a tree. And if the tree is an orange, it will produce an orange. If it's a pomegranate, it will produce a pomegranate. If it's an apple, it will produce an apple. The actions that come out of your heart and out of your life will become a reflection of who you really are. And you are a believer. Or you're not. You shouldn't be caught off guard. You should know the escape route because you've already taken the escape route. The route is clearly marked. The way has been lit. You're not to walk in the direction of darkness. You're not to walk in the direction of wickedness. You're not to pretend like you're asleep. And by the way, the ancient world was a dark world. They didn't have electricity. They lit things with fires and candles and Plates where they would put oil and then they would burn the oil. People in that world lived in a dark world and Rome was ruled with an iron fist and the place was permeated with superstition and alcohol and drug addiction. And people lived their lives under such terrible circumstances that they tried to figure out ways to forget about their life. Just like you. Just like some of you. Where the way that you live is you entertain yourself to make you forget about what is going on all around you. The unbeliever is in the dark. They wander in the maze of their own false ideas. The unbeliever is in the dark about God and they're in the dark about Jesus and they're in the dark about salvation. They're in the dark about redemption. They're in the dark about the coming of Jesus. But that's not who you are. And so it says in verse 6, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. By the way, the expression, let us watch, it's Gregorio. 
it means in the original language, it means stay up, stay awake. In effect, Paul is saying you need to stay alert, awake, conscious. And that this doesn't mean that you can never sleep. It doesn't mean, you know, that you go buy several tons of Starbucks coffee at Costco and you elect never to sleep ever again. It's a spiritual metaphor to describe the spiritual circumstances of your life. You stay awake. Be sober, by the way, is is a metaphor. Again, it was a word used literally in the sense of abstaining from alcoholic beverages, not drinking wine. But here in the figurative sense, it means to be free from every mental and spiritual intoxicating excess Passion, selfishness, rashness, confusion. It's the idea of I need you to be alert and awake and aware. That's the idea. Believers are awake. Believers are aware. Believers are are assured. What are they assured of? Look at verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? In verse 8, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith. You know what? You probably hear people say, believe, believe, believe. But it's not enough to believe. The Bible doesn't just simply invite you to believe. The Bible invites you to believe something. It invites you to believe the truth about Jesus. Believe that there's a Jesus. Believe that he loves you. Believe that he died for you. Believe that he's risen from the dead for you. Believe that he's ascended into heaven. Believe that he's coming back. Believe that the circumstances that you're in right now isn't everything. Believers are awake. They are aware. They are assured. And then he contrasts that with two appointments in verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul contrasts two appointments. One is an appointment to wrath. What that means is that there are men and women. Who have made an appointment with eternity. And the appointment with eternity is going to take on the form of judgment. Because they've rejected the Bible. They've rejected Jesus. They've rejected the offer of hope. Here's what the Bible says. And make no mistake about it. Jesus himself said, everyone who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Guess what? If you come to Jesus, he's accepted you. He hasn't rejected you. If you come to Jesus and you've confessed your sin, you don't have to get saved over and over and over again. You have entered into life and light. And just like God spared Noah and his family and just like God spared Lot and his two daughters, God has another appointment for you. And it isn't cataclysmic judgment, but rather salvation. We Christians are destined to inherit salvation in Christ. Now, you need to understand something. Verse 9 was meant to produce joy and comfort inside of your heart. You are supposed to read this and go, woohoo! You were never meant to read this to go, I am terrified. 
And the reason why you were meant to not come to that conclusion is because Paul wants the Thessalonians to be prepared. In verse 10, it says, who died for us, speaking of Jesus, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. He's reiterating what he has already said in verse 17 in chapter four. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And we shall always be with the Lord. You're the constant companion of Christ. That's who you are. We have an appointment with destiny. We have an appointment with eternity. The death of Jesus guarantees salvation for all believers, whether awake or asleep. The believer in Jesus who dies awakes in his presence. And at the resurrection, we're given a body that's appropriate for eternity. And look what it says. That we should live together with him. And then verse 11, it says, therefore, comfort each other and edify one another, just as you are also doing. The Greek word translated edify comes from two words, oiko and domeo. The, the first word oikos is a house. And demos, or demo, is to build. And so in, the, in that language, it meant to build a house. It came to mean to build each other up. And that's the idea. That we don't tear each other down, but rather we build each other up. We comfort each other. We build each other up. And remember what I said about comfort. It isn't just simply the comfort of knowing that Jesus will be there when you die. But rather, it is the comfort of knowing that when you peer into the future, it's a future where you're there. Because you have a right relationship with God and Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul writes... Be wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. If ever there was a time to be wise, it's now. Let me do, offer you a word of encouragement. Sometimes if you watch too much CNN and you watch too much Fox News and you see the overwhelming tragedy and you see the overwhelming circumstances, your heart will break and your hands will sweat and you can only cry so many tears. Turn it off. Turn it off and open up your Bible. Turn it off and pray for the men and women in Haiti. Pray for the 50,000 new orphans. Pray for the American Red Cross workers. Pray for the emergency service workers. Pray for the people who are there and who are literally risking their life to bring comfort and edification and hope and the gospel. You know what? Sometimes feelings and sometimes pain and sometimes loss and sometimes deprivation crowd out our ability to hear God's promises and heed God's warnings. You know what? One of the most disturbing images from Haiti was 
where men and women were desperately trying to give out much needed resources and the biggest and the strongest and the loudest and the most aggressive pushed and shoved and they knocked women and children out of the way in order to get precious resources. It ought not to be that way, huh? But you know what? You never have to fight in order to get God's attention. You don't have to start a Bible study and you don't have to start a church and you don't have to be a pastor and you don't have to read all the way through the Bible in a year in order to get God's favor. Let me just be clear about this. The Lord God loves you, cares for you. And desires to minister to you. And you don't have to push. And you don't have to shove. And you don't have to shout. In order to get an audience with your creator. In a hospital in Florida. There was an image that came from a young American girl. And she was beaming bright in the safety of her clean room. And the stump of her right leg was bandaged carefully. And she was radiating joy. And the newsman asked her how she was emotionally coping with the loss of her, of her leg. But the joy on her face and the sincerity of her smile told it all. She said, Larry, I have two fully functioning arms and hands. I have one fully functioning leg. She said, with two arms and one leg, I consider myself grateful that God has given me my life. You know what? You could tell she meant it. She was grateful to be alive in a midst where so many people weren't alive. So what is it that you're holding on to? What is it that you're trapped by? What is it that you think that you can't go forward in life unless that is a part of your life? What is it that Jesus is asking you to walk away from? I'm going to tell you what it is in a single word. It's sin. Walk away from it. There is nothing worth as much as having a right relationship with God in Christ. You will be prepared. Or you will be unprepared. But make no mistake about it. There will come a moment in time and space. And the truth about your heart and your circumstances will be frozen. Not just in time, but in eternity. That's why it's important. That's why I'm begging you and I'm pleading with you to make sure that you have a right relationship with Lord. There's, there's a dark storm on the horizon. The dark clouds of human history are gathering together in the present. But the only thing that's certain about the future is that Jesus is there. And I want to encourage you to reach out and take his nail-pierced hand. Don't be apathetic or indifferent. The lost will be unaware or unmoved by the coming day of judgment. There are people here who will remain unaware 
and they'll remain unmoved. But when time and eternity is placed in your heart, I pray that my voice will ring in your ear. Be sober. Watch. Because you don't know when your Savior is coming. Live in a life of constant anticipation. Yes, it's easy to circle the calendar. And it's hard to circle your heart. And change. Today is the day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for that man or that woman who finds themselves distant or dark. Detached. Apathetic and indifferent. Lord, I pray for the person who's found every excuse imaginable to play church, to go through the motions. But their heart has never been changed. It's never been transformed. They've never fully trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior. They refuse to walk away from sin and embrace the Savior. Lord, I pray that you would bring them to a place of repentance and a real forsaking of sin. Lord, I pray that you would work on their heart. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you and be saved. And while we get ready to sing the song, in a moment I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing the closing song. And I want to encourage you, if you've never made a commitment to Christ, I want you to come down here and stand right in front of this podium. You might be embarrassed or ashamed, but make no mistake about it. You're going to be way more embarrassed and way more ashamed on the day of judgment. Turn from your sin. Turn to the Lord. Embrace the compassionate mercy and forgiveness that he offers you in Jesus. Because remember, the only future that is certain is the one with Jesus in it. Let's stand.